good day and welcome to another episode of Rain City Radio. This one kind of goes in the bonus pile because it's not our usual interview or commentary per se, but instead a recording of Wired Magazine Editor-in-Chief and author of The Long Tale, Chris Anderson, speaking at VidFest on Granville Island here in Vancouver a little while back. There was quite a few requests for a release of the lecture and I wrote to Mr. Anderson and asked if how he'd feel about me releasing it and this is what he said. No worries, I'm really okay with free, smiley face. Absolutely feel free, as it were, to release and use as much or as little as you want, edited or non-edited. My strategy is to spread ideas as far and wide as possible. Figuring out how to make money is the easy part. Best, Chris. So with that in mind, let's join Mr. Anderson's Lecture on Free just underway. But first I have to discharge my contractual obligation and show you this curve, um, uh, the, 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 the familiar long tail curve, and just to tell you why I'm thinking about free these days. Um, this is the kind of the, the curve you know very well. It's the shape of, the, of, our, of our society. It's the shape of our culture. It's the shape of our economy. It's called power law Pareto. You know, a few things sell a lot, a lot of things sell a little. We, for the last century, we've only focused on the left side of the curve because our distribution channels, you know, television networks, radio stations, Walmart shelves only had room for hits and bestsellers and blockbusters. And, and then in the last 10 years, with the rise of a new distribution channel called the internet, we've had room for everything on the right. And we've suddenly discovered that there's a lot of room, as, as Richard Feynman, the, the physicist said, there's a lot of room at the bottom. There's a lot of, there's a lot of minority takes. There's a lot of narrow interests. There's a lot of niches out there that are underserved in traditional markets. And, and now, for the first time, we can we can let people get out of the one-size-fits-all, get out, get out of the uh, that lowest common denominator box and start to do what they want, the way they want to do it. And that, and that market, the aggregate market of individual behavior is the long tail. Now, it's enabled by this distribution system called the internet that has no shelf space cost. Um, unlike every other distribution channel in history, be it shelves or, or, or radio spectrum, uh, there's a cost, and, and the only products that make it out in those, in those markets are the ones that pay back, that pay the rent for their shelf space, for their, for their channel space, for their prime time slot, whatever. If you, don't, if you don't pay the rent, you don't get out and you're invisible to the marketplace. The internet has zero marginal cost of distribution, which means we can be entirely indiscriminate about what gets out there. We can do this kind of massive global experiment in, in, doing, in, 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 in doing everything and anything that is possible. You're basically maximizing the potential space um, by letting every experiment that can run, run, and then figuring out who we are and what we want. All enabled by free shelf space. So free changes things. Free, free is entirely different from any other cost. Free allows you to, it lowers the barriers to entry. It, it basically allows you to do things thoughtlessly. It allows you to waste. It allows you to be profligate in your use of resources because you've just taken that whole mental check of, you know, is it worth it out? And free shelf space has created the internet as we know it today and this explosion of culture and variety. So, the world, in, in traditional economics, you define the, the science of economics as, 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 the, as the study of choice under scarcity. You know, how do you, how do you slice the pot and the pie? Um, and yet we've just entered a marketplace where it's all about abundance, where we don't have scarcity. There's no, there no, there's no limit to how many pages you can have on the internet, how many videos you can have on YouTube. Um, scarcity versus abundance. Economics has very little say about abundance. 
Economics has very little to say about free. That struck me as a good opportunity to uh, to to think through it, think it through, and and write a book, um, and really try to figure out is you know what are the economics of free? What are the economics of abundance? So let's, I'm going to start with a little history of free, and it starts with the patron saint of free. Uh, this guy here. Um, this is King Gillette. King Gillette is uh, was in 1900 a 40 year old failed inventor. He died. Pretty much flamed out three times as an entrepreneur, and um, uh, was had a family to support and was working as a salesman for a cork bottle cap company. And you know, he, he at forty, he figured he had one last shot, um, and he went to his boss and said, I, you know, "What should I do? What's your advice to me? You know, I, I want to make something. I want to sell something. I want to invent something." And his boss said, "Make something that people throw away." Um, as I imagine the bottle cap industry, the notion of the, the value of disposable items uh, seemed clear. And so King Gillette thought a little bit about this. And then he decided that um, uh, as he was shaving the next morning, uh, shaving half of his face, I suppose, the next morning, uh, he, he, uh, he, he contemplated the straight edge, or otherwise known as cutthroat razors they used in the day, um, which was basically a, a long blade and had to sharpen with a leather belt. And uh, as they got older, they got harder and harder to sharpen. He said, you know, we can do better here. How about a disposable razor? And um, that, was, uh, that turned out to be a metallurgical challenge. And so he spent five years at the metallurgist um, trying to figure out how to make stainless steel thin and cheap and sharpenable. Um, enough to, to, to do it. But eventually they got it. They invented the disposable razor blade, and no one bought it. They just could not get people to understand the concept of a disposable razor blade. Um, and so, they, so then he had to come pioneer another sort, which was in marketing. And he pretty much you know, plastered the world with uh, his face on all the packaging. People thought he was fictional, like I had Jemima, because he was so ubiquitous. Um, he has a name. Um, and still people didn't quite get it. So he did one last thing. He said, the problem with, with the whole disposable razor thing is that until people try it, they don't get it. So we need to get them to try it. And when we get them to try it, we need to, kind of, we need to eliminate that initial barrier, that initial, is it worth it? You know, how, did, how, did, how do you do the economic calculation of a lifetime of disposable razor use um, if you've never tried it before? So we just need to put it in their hands. So he started giving them away, giving the razors away. And he started first in banks, and he gave tens of thousands to banks, and the banks could distribute it to their customers as part of a save and shave campaign. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and that worked. And then World War I started, and he distributed hundreds of thousands to the uh, US Army, um, who then gave them to soldiers. And the soldiers then came home from the war with a you know, understanding behavior. And today, we have the razor and blade business model, where you give away, you give away one thing to, to establish a pattern of use, which then turns into a lifetime of revenues. You go from a kind of point of sale revenue model to an annuity. You go from a kind of a, uh, you know, a, 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 a product revenue model to a subscription revenue model. And you see it today everywhere from cell phones. You, know, you get a cell phone for free, you pay for the minutes, and all that sort of thing. So razors and blades, that was the first big period. Um, and we, we get no different economics. There's, not, there's nothing new about economics in this. It's simply psychology. It's moving money from one pocket into the other. It's moving money through over time, from the point of sale to a annuity stream over, over, over time. It is sleight of hand. It's a little bit of a fake. It's not really free. You pay the same amount in the end. And with that, farmer free came a little bit of suspicion about free, because it's like, you know, it's not really free. I mean, I'm going to get I'm gonna get a pick charge sooner or later, right? And then you just start suckering into this market, and maybe it's going to cost me more down the line. And so the whole kind of you get what you pay for, and there's no free lunch, and all these terms about free came about from this form of sort of, um, you know, uh, 
it's the semi-free, which is which is invoking the word free without really changing the underlying, underlying economics. Okay, so that's that's the first free. The second free um, was the free from my business. Um, I'm in the media business, and um, as you know, media business is always built on free. Radio is free to air, television is free to air, our websites are free, our, our physical publications are, if not free, subsidized to the point that they're almost free. Um, I mean, people often asked. It, it, people often said about the newspaper business that if you can understand why newspapers are sold in boxes that don't control how many copies you take, you'll understand the newspaper business. They're not selling newspapers. They're selling audiences to advertisers. They want you to take more because they make the money from the number of copies that were distributed, not, the, not the, 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 the money that you pay them. And when we set the price for our magazine, which is $10 a year, that happens to be less than 10% of what it actually costs us. It's entirely psychologically um, derived number. We charge a number, we charge that $10, not because we want your revenues, it's because we want you to prove that you really want the magazine. And, that, and, that, and the act of writing a check of any amount qualifies you as engaged, as really wanting it, which allows us to charge five times much, five times more to the, three times more, depending on your business, uh, to the advertiser. That's the difference between controlled circulation and paid circulation. It's simply the expression of true interest through the act of writing a check or, or using a credit card. It could be one cent, it could be 10 cents, it could be $10. The only reason, by the way, we don't make it one cent if we don't want to devalue the product. So we come up with these imaginary numbers, $10, which has no basis in economics and entirely has a basis in psychology. So those are, that, uh, those are two forms of freedom. Raises and blades, which is a cross subsidy, and then third party pays. Um, third party pays is um, the advertiser pays us to make a product free to the consumer. Um, it's free to you, really free to you, um, but it's not, but, but, uh, but, but we get paid and there's no underlying change in the economics. You know, again, it's just shifting money around. If not, <coughs> but not over time, then into a three body, then three, a three body market. So, uh, so it feels free, so you're allowed to invoke the word free. No big, Difference now, obviously, the free the advertising, the advertising-driven free model has become the internet's main business model, and so we've seen the sort of triumph of the media models in industries of all sorts. As things, things become digital, they can adopt the media model, um, but it's not really changing the underlying economics. It's just finding a way to make it feel free. But what? If, but there's another form, a third form of free, which really is changing the underlying economics, and that's what I'm going to talk about um, next. Um, this is a picture of a nuclear power opening ceremony in 1954. The future was very, very great. Um, you can see where they, they got their uniforms uh, from Star Trek. Um, and um, you know, this is, I mean, none of us are old enough to remember this, but this was a super optimistic time. This is a time when nuclear power and plastics and penicillin and you know, modern medicine, etc., was going to bring about a truly shiny future. And one of the things that it was going to do nuclear power was it was going to bring about what uh, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission said um, was uh, electric energy too cheap to meter. Um, and we laugh about this now because it didn't turn out to be true between Three Mile Island and waste disposal and you know, regulatory issues. Um, it wasn't the case. But it really did feel like a case at the time. Um, uranium uh, deposits were, were plentiful. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, the, the uh, very, very little uh, pollution from these plants. Um, you know, inputs were water, and you know, outputs were electricity. And, and you know, people really thought that electricity would be too cheap to meter. Now, I, I should point out, I don't mean free. I mean too cheap to meter. In other words, you know, it's so close, so so close to free that you wouldn't force people to 
to, to modify the behavior. So for example, what they meant is no meters. That means you wouldn't have electric meter outside your house. And as a matter of the World Trade Center was originally designed with no light switches in the, in the individual offices. Instead, there would be a switches for entire floors, and you would just turn the building on and off like a Christmas tree. Um, the idea would be, why would you bother people with a light switch when there's no cost associated with it? Um, you know, at 5.30 or whatever, you just turn the, turn the building off. Uh, this, this, um, this uh, again, didn't happen, but as a thought experiment, consider if it had. Uh, electricity is a resource, is an input that touches every aspect of the economy. Um, it, what happens if a, a fundamental input to every aspect of the economy goes to zero? How, would, how does the world change? Well, you know, we have an electron economy, but what would that mean? Well, everything that could be powered by electricity would be powered by electricity. And that means you can do things like desalinate water for no cost. And if you can desalinate water for no cost, then you can irrigate vast swaths of the country for no cost. And then all the motion inputs to agriculture, that would be sun, CO2, and water, are now at no cost. And all you're left with is fertilizer and labor. And then maybe you would be, you know, you would build, uh, be growing crops for biofuels, and we never would have gotten on the sort of fossil fuel thing. And we would have had a very, very different world if only electricity had been free. <laughs> well, here's the good news. There are three fundamental inputs. There are three resources. Um, that touch every bit as much of our economy as electricity today that are, in fact, becoming too cheap to meter. And uh, the first one is the one you probably can guess at, which is computer processing power. Um, you know Moore's Law. Moore's Law is you know, the, the, power, um, uh, the power of a processor doubles every 18 months. Um, the corollary, the economic corollary of that is that for the same amount of power, the cost of the processor halves every 18 months. That means that on the individual transistor level, it went from $100 to $10 to $1 to $0.10 cent to 0.1 cent, cent and so on. That the individual processing units, the atomic, the atomic units of computing became so cheap that they are virtually free. And this guy is Carbon Reed. He is a, a semiconductor pioneer, a Caltech professor in the 1970s. And he was the first person to really understand the economic implications of Moore's Law. And what he, what he realized is that if transistors are becoming too cheap to meter, then the, then the sort of moral imperative, or the, the sort of the, the psychological consequence of that is that, is that you must waste them. And, and, he, and he told his students, waste is good. He said, find a way to waste transistors. The people who truly capture the opportunity presented to us by this unprecedented learning curve phenomenon of Moore's Law are going to be the ones who break out of the scarcity conservation mode and move into the abundance exploitation mode. The ones who figure out how to waste transistors, who shift, who shift from sort of transistors are expensive, we must be careful, to transistors are free, we must, we must, we must ignore their costs and waste them every way possible. They're going to be the ones who figure out what computing is for. And um, he didn't really know how to do that. All he said is waste transistors, and his students sort of scratched their heads and said, I'll pave highways with them. I don't know how we waste transistors. And it was this guy here, Alan Kay at Sarah's Park, who I think was the first person who figured it out. And the way, he, the place he decided to waste transistors was was to take computing away from the IT guys. And you know, again, we're most of us are too young to remember the computing paradigm in the '70s, but this was the mainframe age. This is the era of the glass box, so these big corporate computers that sat inside, you know, in a room, in an air-conditioned floor with a race 
you know, very, very floor level, behind locked doors, and the only way you can use the computer is if the IT guys let you use the computer. And you need to convince them that your algorithms were, were appropriate and mission critical and efficient and wouldn't crash the computers. And you need to basically do something that they understood. And if you made a pitch to them that they understood, they would accept your deck of cards or whatever it was, and then two days later they'd give you the print out of your error messages. And, 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 that was, and that was the way it worked. I mean, you know, basically, computing was what the IT guys defined computing as. And the one thing they decided that, you know, would be a totally inappropriate use of the mainframe would be on I.O., you know, inputs and outputs um, issues. It's basically, give us, a, give us a code that runs your core mission-critical algorithm most efficiently, and then get out. And Alan Kay said, you know, you know, screw that. Um, let's, let's, you know, let's waste transistors to take computing out of, the, out of the glass box. And so he thought a good way to do it would be to draw cartoons on the screen and to um, you know, introduce a new, a new usage behavior that was friendly and easy to understand and would be accessible to non-IT guys. And today we have the graphic user interface. And what's happened is that we are, we are wasting transistors on, on, on a scale unimaginable in the 1970s for eye candy, for cartoons, for diagrams, for animations, I mean, that's for cartoons, for, for, for animations, for, for little fiddly, funny, iconic things on the screen that have no algorithmic function as the IT guys can find it, but do have the extraordinary advantage of, of taking computing into the hands of all of us. And today, um, I, you know, I, I, I invoke this, this, this picture. This, this picture should be on every cubicle, in every cubicle in Silicon Valley. This is what the IT guys thought the home computer would be. This is the Neiman Marcus catalog of 1964. And um, it is the world's first home computer. It was a kitchen computer. Um, the only application that the IT establishment of the, of the 60s could imagine for computing in the home, well, it's just, first let's give them credit. They got a lot of things right. They understood the technological implications of Moore's Law, which is that computing would someday be small and affordable and, if I dare say, stylish. Um, what, they, what they couldn't figure out is why anyone would walk um, in your home. They could not think of what someone would do in the home. The only application, they scratched their heads, the only application they could think of was recipe card management. <laughs> and, and you'll notice this kitchen computer has an integrated cutting board. <laughs> So you know they were right. Computers did get cheap and and um, and small and stylish, and did end up in every every home. And as a result, you know we figured out what they were for. And today, the, you know the, the democratization of computing, the, the the cheapness of computing, the the ability of us to waste transistors in, in exploring the potential space of everything computing can be, has brought about the internet and the whole video game industry and everything else that's so fantastic and changed the world. And the one thing we don't do with them is recipe card management. <laughs> and I think that's really telling. I, you know, us as technologists, we have no idea what technology is for. That's not our job. Our job is to make technology cheap and easy and ubiquitous so that the world can tell us what it's for. We need to put technology in the hands of people who live in the real world, and then they will figure it out because they will do the experiments. And in, and in that vast collective experiment with wasting transistors, with you know, enabled by the fact that the transistors are effectively free, only then will we do the sort of, you know, the evolutionary, you know, process of figuring out what the technology is for. And we're just beginning to do this with, you know, with the internet and everything else, and cell phones, etc. But, you know, 
What, the one thing I can tell you is that, is that we in Silicon Valley don't know the answer, and that's not our job. So that's the first, that's the first electricity-like resource that, sort of be, that became so close to free that you could treat it as free and change the world. The second is storage. Uh, storage is dropping in cost even faster than processing power. And um, I'll tell you just what sort of, uh, you, you, and, and, and we need to think about how to waste storage. And I'll tell you a little anecdote, and I'm pretty sure my CIO is not in the audience. Um, but um, tell me this, this, if any of you work for a big company, I work for a $4 billion media conglomerate. Tell me if this brings any bells whatsoever. You come into work, and uh, there's an email from the IT department saying, <laughs> Uh, uh, we're running out of space on the shared server. <laughs> um, so this is pretty much a weekly occurrence. My entire staff gets it. So we spend our Monday mornings cleaning out, you know, you know, excess files from our shared server. And you know, after, after you know years of doing this and sort of realizing this is kind of part of the Monday morning routine, I, I said, I wonder how much storage we have. Uh, now let me just remind you to calibrate your sense of what storage costs. Right now, a terabyte costs about three hundred dollars, three hundred fifty dollars. Um, we just got a, a, my, my kids um, are, you know, they, they, have, they have a computer, they use it mostly to do a Lego stop motion animations. And uh, so we got, that, we got a computer, and they, you know, a terabyte was an option. It cost like 300 bucks. And so, we, so they, my kids have a terabyte of storage. And uh, yeah, that's, that's just a standard, you know, Dell model uh, right now. Uh, so I went to our IT guys and I said, you know, the company, the company of 140 people, um, you know, our division of 140 people, how much storage do we have in the shared server? And the answer was uh, 500 gigabytes. That's one half terabyte. <laughs> so my nine-year-old has twice as much storage on the Somebody got stuck thinking that storage was expensive and in fact storage is getting free. And so what we're and so what they're doing is they're they're conserving the thing they think is expensive and they're not buying more storage capacity and they're wasting the thing that they can't measure, which is my time and all my employees' time. They're pissing us off every every week and making us delete files because they're stuck in the wrong paradigm. Meanwhile, if you go online, you'll find that, that uh, virtually you know, it, Yahoo and others will give you infinite storage for free. Um, infinite email storage, um, you know, web hosting storage. Um, it basically, the, the market price of storage is zero, and only innovation in the storage industry is coming from people who understand that the market price of storage is zero. And yet, and yet our companies you know, are, um, have not got this. And there's a reason why we stopped using the corporate network. There's a reason why we dropped the DSL across the kind of entire company. And we don't use the email server or, or any of the storage anymore because, because um, my employees get it, but my, my, my IT department does not. And um, as you can see, this is going to be a longer conversation to have with them. But, um, uh, but, but, the, but the point is, is that if you're under 25, this is self-evident. This is, this is a head-slapping the obvious. Uh, and, and, yet, and yet so much of the world doesn't get it. So that's number two. Um, processing, storage, becoming too cheap to meter, and then finally, here's the last one, uh, bandwidth. Um, uh, this, is my, this is my last mean, my last mean slide, and I think I can be, <laughs> now I'm in Canada, I can be, especially about American television. Um, <laughs> television, uh, the, the broadcast era was, was, the, was the first kind of mind-blowing new economy. Um, and if you think about broadcasting, you need to cast your mind back to 1920. Think about broadcast, okay. Somebody, you know, Marconi, et cetera, invented a medium where the marginal cost of reaching the nth viewer or listener was zero. It costs you no more to reach two million people than to reach one million people. Once you set up the broadcast tower, it doesn't cost anything to reach more people. Broadcast towers are expensive, the license is expensive, etc. but reaching more people is free. The marginal cost 
of, 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 the, of, of reaching, an audience, reaching a, a, an audience member is zero. The consequence of that, so that's amazing, that's absolutely amazing, but the consequence, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, corollary to that is you can only do it with a limited number of shows. So you have like, you know, in, back in these, the days, you have five stations and they're 24 hours a day. And so, you know, at any given time, there's only five shows. Now, and so what you needed to invent was a medium. You needed to invent content that for the first time in history suited everyone. You needed to invent mass media because you had an economic model that only worked with uh, what reached everybody at the same time. And so you needed to invent content that would suit everybody at the same time. And so we ended up with this. This is Everybody Loves Raymond. This is Raymond from Everybody Loves Raymond. This is, this is what the 20th century taught us was our culture. This is, this is what they, this is what they, you know, if you go up and turn on television, listen to the radio, this is what they're telling us. Well, this is who we are, this is what we like. It is 30-minute, low-brow sitcoms. Um, it, is, uh, it is a classic, one-size-fits-all, lowest common denominator product. And it is, has happy endings. It's got a domestic theme. Um, it's pretty inoffensive. And um, you know, there's one problem with Everybody Loves Raymond, which is that nobody loves Raymond. Everybody <laughs> likes Raymond. And it's not because the guys who created this are terrible. It's not because you know, there's anything wrong with the actors. It's because that's what, that's what mass media requires. Mass media requires that we focus on the commonalities of our interests. And the reality is, is that the things we share are relatively banal. You know, what, what's the one thing? We could probably all talk about the weather um, or, or, you know, the World Cup or something like that. But, you know, the one thing, the one thing we can all agree on is that we like a good laugh or an okay laugh. Um, <laughs> the things that we love are the things where we all disagree. You know, and, and, and that's the problem is that this medium had no place for the, play, the things that we cared most about because those reflect the differences in our cultures. Those, is what, those are the things that marked us as individuals, and yet the medium was required by the underlying economics of broadcast to only focus on the things we share. That's what scarcity economics turns, in, turns the culture into. And then you have, and then you have abundance economics. Um, uh, Chad Hurley, Steve Shen, who created YouTube, understood that bandwidth was falling in price even faster than storage and processing. I'll give you another data point. Um, Today, it costs one quarter of a cent to stream uh, a video to one person for one hour. Um, one quarter of a cent per person per hour. And next year, that'll be one eighth of a cent, and so on. Um, that is, you know, at, you know, many people have thought about, about uh, video services, but only when it became that cheap could they invent YouTube, which was a video service that was entirely indiscriminate. They, it's, it's not us tube, it's not you know, guys in the suit tube, it's, it's, it's YouTube. They don't care. You can do what you want. You can waste their storage, you can waste their processing, you can waste their bandwidth with your home videos, um, with, you know, you, you, with whatever you want. And so what you get is things like Lonely Girl 15. Um, Lonely Girl 15 was, a, was one of the first YouTube viral successes. Ostensibly, a three-minute you know, three webcam video of a homeschooled teenager who was lonely. Um, it later turned out that she was an actress and was a career advancement scam by two, <laughs> two, two wannabe Hollywood producers. But no matter, no matter, the point is, is that she had about the same audience as, as Raymond um, at, at her height. And, um, and she is, a, she is, a, 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 she is a, a creature. She is, that show is a creature that would never have been approved by the establishment that green-lighted rain. Um, 
This, this is the future of television. It is not future of television that anyone would have predicted. It violates every norm of television. It's not high quality. It's not high production quality. These aren't known stars. It's not the right length. It doesn't have any of the right themes. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is not television as we know it, and yet it is television as the audience wants it. And again, what's happening with YouTube with this kind of profligate waste of bandwidth and storage and processing power is that we're doing this extraordinary global experiment, figuring out collectively what the future of television is. In the same way that we figured out what the people, what, what computers were for, so will we figure out what television is for. And, it's, and no one in Madison Avenue is going to tell us. Instead, we're going to run every experiment that can run and will run. And we are going to do every possible form of television that can, that can be done. It's a huge kind of biological, that's like a biological you know, experiment. You know, that's what nature does. It does every experiment that can be done. You maximize the potential space. Some things win, it's competitive, many things lose. Most stuff sucks, a couple things work. Uh, most mutations are non-viable, non a few are extraordinary, and we're going to figure it out collectively. And that's because we're wasting the, uh, the you know, wasting these resources. So bandwidth storage processing, all inputs to the 21st century economy that are as important as electricity, all of them now, if you're under 25, you've grown up in the Google generation, you get it. Waste them. Waste them. They don't cost anything. We, um, we know they don't cost anything. We don't feel guilty about uploading our snowboarding videos to YouTube um, you know, in the same way that we would, we would never think of sort of you know, sending them into America's funniest home videos. Because we realize there's no cost. There's no barrier. There's no gatekeeper. There's no approval process. It doesn't matter. And that liberating, the liberation of free is what allows us to figure out who we are as people, who we are as individuals, who we are as cultures, as countries, by doing this experiment and not letting anyone stand in our way. To give you one last example, just to kind of break out of the, you know, just to say it's not just about the internet, um, the technology to create free of other sorts. This is, this is an output from something called a 3D printer. Um, you know what a 2D printer is. You take, you take uh, you know, pixels on the screen, you turn them into dots of ink on paper. Bits go into atoms. Um, 3D printers do the same thing with geometry. So you take a shape on a screen, and then, um, and then these 3D printers trace it out with a laser on a bath of resin or, or powder. And out of this bath comes the physical object. You turn bits into atoms in three dimensions. It's kind of cool. It's like scour coming out of the lake. It's, it's, it's beautiful to watch. And, um, and, and you think, cool, nice prototyping. But what we don't realize is there's, a, there's actually another, just like this car we figure out the economic implication of that. Um, if you think about it, there's an economic implication in 3D printing as well, which is that there's no marginal cost of complexity. So when you're making a physical product, when you make this product, you think, oh, this product was designed to be, you know, shaped. Probably was not designed to fit my hand, but it was probably designed for aesthetic purposes and, you know, et cetera. But it's also designed to be manufacturable. It's designed to be easy and cheap to manufacture. And the more complexity you put into the product, the more curves and whirls and funny jumps and crannies, the harder it's going to be to manufacture. Three years cost three times as much to make as one year. With 3D printing, complexity is free. You can print a Timex watch for the same price as a block of plastic. There's no machining cost. And as a result, there's no disincentive to make things incredibly complicated and detailed and impossibly beautiful and alien um, because it doesn't cost anything to do so. And I think we're going to see a new class of products. And we're going to realize that what the things that what we think products must look like are partly reflected by who we are and what we want, and partly reflected by the underlying scarcity of manufacturing processes. And, as, and, and maybe it won't be 3D printing, maybe it will be some other form of turning bits into atoms, but 
Um, the consequence is going to be is that we're going to you know, rediscover what a product can be and what we want, and we're going to learn something about ourselves in the process, and that 20 years from now, you know, your world will look different because it will be, it'll be subtly more complex in a way that wasn't possible in traditional manufacturing. Okay, so there you have it. There's, there, there's, there, there's, uh, there, there's a sort of the history of free. Now I'm going to give you sort of the, the one sentence. If you're going to write down one sentence, this is the sentence you should write down. This is the sentence that you learned that you would like to pick up in the first week of Econ 101. It's like, I write out Adam Smith. This is like, you know, like, you know, like, like on, the, on the seventh day of economics. This is, this is absolute basic stuff, and you pay no attention to it. Um, and I'm just going to repeat the sentence. In a competitive market, price falls from marginal cost. And you sort of say, well, duh. And you think, okay, well, if the marginal cost is $100, that means that as you get more and more competition, the price will go, you know, close to $101, 100 Ten dollars. So the price will kind of close into that marginal cost. The competition will force the price down. And you, and you don't think about this again. And you move on to the rest of economics. And you never consider what would happen if the marginal cost was zero. I've just, given, I've just explained to you three cases in which that digital economics makes brings marginal costs at, to zero, or so close to zero that someone's going to treat them as zero. And so what that means is that is that there's there's a uh, the, the corollary to this sentence, which is a truism. This is the law of physics and economics. Is that everything that can become digital will become digital, and everything that does become digital will become free. And that's it. I mean, it's just it's, it's this isn't like a, pres a prescription. It's not a prediction. It's sort of like it's just it's like the law of gravity. Everything that is digital will become free. Now, not to say that you can't make money from it, and I'll talk about that later on, and not to say that every form of it will become free, but there will be, that, that it is possible for a product to become free if someone will do that. And you're either going to beat that person, or you're going to compete with that person. But free is the inevitable price point of everything digital, and the question is, okay, well, how do you make a business? How do you, how do you build an economy built on free? Um, so the basic, the basic rule, I'm going to give you a little case study here, is to, is to if you can see these curves going to zero, then a, a classic opportunity is to pay this round out. Let's be the first to get to free. Um, let's treat it as zero. And, and, and this is a, taken from the article in Wired that Alice mentioned. This is what happened in the case of the webmail market. Um, 2002, Yahoo has a dominant share of webmail. Uh, they charge $30 a year for 25 megabytes. They get, they get word that Google is coming into the market. Um, there's registered Gmail. The, dot com, and they hear that Google is intending to give away a gigabyte of storage for free. And so you have, you have to figure out what to do. Now, the first thing they said is they said, this is completely unfair. And there's a fascinating kind of paradox and inversion um, of power that comes with free, which is that, that in the, the incumbents are a huge disadvantage, and the startups, the newcomers, are have a, a huge advantage. And here's why. Yahoo had on the order of 120 million users, um, many of whom were paying $30 a month. Google had no users uh, on, the, on, their, on, their, on their email sign. They just launched it. And when they did launch it, they launched it in a closed beta, an invitation-only beta. So Google could say, Google could invoke the word free at no real cost. It bought a couple servers, but because it had so few users, there was no real infrastructure cost outside of that. Yahoo, with more than 100 million users, if they do the same thing, they have to buy acres of server farms to satisfy the demand and, no, and, and, and potentially lose all the revenues. So in a weird way, the, the, the little guys get to free more easily than the big guys. And they have this huge advantage in getting market share because they can invoke this word, and the big guys, and the big guys have the real costs. So the Yahoo, you know, Yahoo's thinking hard about this. Are we going to cannibalize this revenue stream? 
um, and invest in these resources um, simply to protect ourselves from Google's free. And they, and they looked at these numbers, these lines, and they said, yes, here's why. The storage costs, they know, so whatever it costs them today to do this, it's going to cost them less tomorrow. The storage uh, costs are coming down. It was $20 per gigabyte when they, in 2002, and today it's about sort of 40 cents per gigabyte at their level. Um, meanwhile, the revenue per user was going up as, as advertisers became more sophisticated about advertising, as we got you know, find more ways to, to monetize the, uh, the, 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 uh, the users. Um, so, okay, the, the revenues go up and the costs go down. So sooner or later, it's going to make sense to call it free. Um, however, they were forced to make this decision in 2004. So what they said is, okay, the only way we're going to beat one gigabyte for free is infinite gigabytes for free. And so that's what they announced. And today, they now offer you infinite email storage for free. Um, and, and they protected the market share, and uh, they're still number one in the market. And uh, God, Google has not actually uh, uh, matched them on that. And what's fascinating about it is actually Yahoo lost no money. Turned out the people who were paying $30 um, a month were really engaged. These were the people who really valued their Yahoo email. And Yahoo was able to offer some additional features, uh, take the advertising off their email, and offer some additional features that made them consider, continue to want to pay $30 a month. So they didn't actually lose that much revenue. Meanwhile, the fear of people who can't would sort of say, free email, I'm going to just going to waste it. Um, it turns out that behavior changed slowly, and that the people who were email users continued to delete old emails for reasons that were completely unnecessary economically, but just had to do with habit. And so they didn't have to have storage capacity as much as they wanted, as much as they feared. And the spammers were easily caught algorithmically, and basically it turned out they never lost money. They, they continued to grow, they continued to gain market share um, from Hotmail rather than Google. And it all ended up nicely. And so now there's the price of webmail on, on, online. It's, um, it's free. Um, now it turns out there was a price even lower than free, um, which is the next, the next uh, competition that is paying people to use your service. And, and they'll get there. They'll get there eventually. And you know, we'll, we'll see how far that goes. But, but basically, the, the, you know, the, the threshold of free has been reached. Um, so, um, so, so, so there, there you have the sort of example of how a company competes with free. Uh, Microsoft obviously has spent much of its last 10 years competing with free with uh, uh, Linux and Apache and MySQL. Open source is Microsoft competing with free. And basically, you've seen the market divide into two, two camps. There's the free version. I mean, again, you know, look at Microsoft. I mean, you know, that, the fact that the marginal cost of, of, of digital products is zero is nothing new. I mean, Bill Gates knew that 30 years ago. So how were they able to charge $300 for office? Um, I'll repeat the original sentence. In a competitive market, the price falls to the marginal cost. And Microsoft fought free with their monopoly. They fought, fought free by not making a competitive market. Um, that, that, online, that's going to be tougher. It's harder to have, have monopolies online. Um, and uh, the way they fight free in the, in the enterprise um, with their you know, operating systems is they say, well, here's the, you know, what we're doing is you can have Linux for free, or you can have one that really has got a lot of support and tailored tailor for enterprise needs. And basically, you know, you're a, you, you know, you're a big company, you're Morgan Stanley, whatever. You don't care that much about the cost of software. What you really care about is, you know, uptime and reliability, et cetera. So we're going to serve them. So they decided that eventually they will largely give away the bottom half of the market to free, and they're going to focus on the top half of the market. And that's perfectly legitimate. So here are all the other forms of business models of open up free. I told you about the two original ones, um, the ones that are hundreds of years old, razors and blades, et cetera. That's a cross-subsidy and ad support, the third-party paid models. The new forms of free that kind of leverage these, the, the digital economics, the ones that are really a new form of economics, are 
or something called freemium. Um, freemium is the, is the version of the, of the old free sample model. Old free sample model is like muffins, right? You give away 1% of your muffins to sell 99%. The marginal cost of the muffin is non-zero, and so you have to be pretty careful about how many you give away for free. Um, freemium is in the digital economy is just the opposite. You give away 99% free and you sell 1%. The marginal cost of serving, giving someone Flickr basic is zero. Um, and then some tiny fraction of, the, of these people convert to Flickr Pro. And because the overall cost of serving the, the basic users are so low, the small number of premium users subsidizing everybody else. And we'll talk a lot about that in the games industry in, in, in a minute, but that's, that's premium, and that's sort of the other big model, along with advertising, that's the other big internet free model. Um, we have labor exchange. Labor exchange, you know, at this point we're now moving outside the monetary economy. Um, labor exchange is when, is when you know, take Google 411. This is directory assistance. Regular directory assistance, you dial 411, it's 411 here. And you pay $2 a minute or whatever, and then a couple people experimented with, okay, we'll give, you the, we'll give you the answer, but you have to listen to an ad. Google 411 is no advertising, no, no cost. Um, how is this a business model? Turns out what you're doing is you're training their voice recognition algorithms. Um, you can buy voice recognition algorithms that will do regional accents over the English language um, or other languages. Um, what you can't find is, is the libraries that will do regional accents for proper nouns. So it's VJ's dry cleaner. How do you pronounce that with a kind of a Quebecois accent? You know, they don't, you can't buy software to do that. So when you call Google 411 and you say, BJ's dry cleaner, and they say, do you mean Vince's dry cleaner? And you say, no. The act of saying no has made their software smarter. It's made their software more, software more valuable. And then they say, well, and then, and then, and then they tell you, they keep doing it until they give you the right answer. You're happy to go through this process because you get the right answer and it's free. They're happy to do it for free because they're getting, uh, they're getting a much better voice recognition algorithm, which they'll eventually turn into a product. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in the game context later, but that's, that's the third form. Uh, second form, rather. And the third form is the sort of the, 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 the freaky thing known as the gift economy, uh, which is open source, which is Wikipedia, which is Craigslist, which is the blogosphere, which is the most extraordinary social phenomenon of our day. The fact that people will do top quality work, will do, the fact that people will work at all for free, um, has been a, a mind blower for, 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 for many people. And you, know, the, you can still treat it as an economic calculation because they're obviously. You know, they're still, they're, still, they're still making decisions on what to do and what not to do, but it's not based around money. It's based around things like attention and reputation and things like that. Um, but nevertheless, it is, it is free. It is, you know, 10 years ago, someone would have told you that I'm you know, smoking dope and this is you know, only in Berkeley, a burning man phenomenon. And now it's, the, now it's perhaps the most, the most powerful force on the planet today. Um, Non-monetary economies with incentives other than cash. So, um, I, one last little bit of econ one one and then return to games. Um, every, the other thing you'll, you'll remember from econ one one is every abundance creates a new scarcity. That's the only place you can make money is in scarcity. Um, and you know, we still have plenty of scarcities. We still have time and money are the classic scarcities. Um, but abundant content, abundant you know, um, services, software, creates scarcities of attention. There's only so many hours in a day and so many eyeballs, if you will. And reputation, um, and and here's a sort of a nifty um, uh, currency conversion uh, chart. Um, this is how we we take we go from the non-monetary economy to the monetary economy. With attention, we measure attention with on the web with traffic, and we monetize traffic with ads. With reputation, 
we measure reputation, among other ways, with incoming links. Google turns incoming links into something called page rank. Page rank, because it determines where things appear in organic search, turns into traffic, and we monetize traffic with ads. So there you have it. I mean, you know, there you have the exchange rate of the, of the 21st century, that we're taking non-monetary economies and turning them into money through, this, through, through, through processes that look like this. And you, know, you can ask great economic questions, like who's the Alan Greenspan of the attention economy? Who determines the, you know, the, the money supply of, of reputation? What's the exchange rate today? How does that change? You know, how is, it, what's the, is there a global market? Is there a regional market? All these interesting questions need to be asked. But, but, there, there, but you can now accept that, there a, that the non-monetary economies are, are, are the big growers online, and, um, and they're all largely in the world of free. So um, you, you, know, you see these examples outside the internet. Prince gives away his CDs and in the Daily Mail because the CD is the commodity with no marginal cost or low marginal cost. And what is he doing? Why is he doing it? He's doing it because he's charging $600 a seat at Wembley Arena. He gives away the product and sells the performance. He gives away the abundance and sells the scarcity. Um, Ryanair, you can now get a flight from London to Brisbane for five euros. The CEO of Ryanair has promised to make that free. How uh, they're doing it, they're redefining their, their, their business. They're, they're moving outside of the, there's this classic razor blades, cross subsidy, et cetera. We're not in the seat business anymore. We are in the large travel and tourism business. So they make the money from, you know, from rental cars and hotel reservations and advertising on the site in the backs of their seats. They make the money from selling water and sandwiches on board. They make the money from charging you for your baggage because their actual business is selling the cargo space to paying shippers. They make their money from subsidies from the places they go to. And the way they get to free is by offering gambling on board. Uh, they turn the place into casinos. And in the same way that you get a free drink in Las Vegas, you can have a free seat if you gamble on your flight to Lisbon. <laughs> the psychology of free and air travel is something that needs to be figured out. But, um, but uh, it, doesn't, it hasn't hurt that. Um, and finally, let's talk about games. Um, so this the second time is not really a game, but it, uh, I, I'll just bring this up as, as the first example to, to remind you that it's entirely possible. You know, we in the game, or we in the games industry, you, many of you are in the games industry, um, I'm a consumer in the games industry, the classic people think that games are all about package software. You know, 50 bucks, box, store, the deal. Um, as you move online, as you move to a place where out of limited shelf space, out of high marginal cost of delivery, distribution, into one with infinite shelf space and zero marginal cost distribution, you can move out of pay into free. And second life is, is, as you know, free to play, but you pay for the land. So here they said, okay, we're, we're going to we're going to invoke the, the economics of the internet to change the business model. And so now I'm going to go through a, a list of all the many ways that games can be free, have been free, and this is a tiny fraction of them, and this is page after page after page, and it me about the ugly slides, but I think this will take us to something that we can talk about in the Q&A. Uh, the first thing is to remind you that the most popular game in the world is free. And you know what this is. <laughs> it is solid. Um, in terms of hours played, etc., the most popular game in the world has always been free. Um, and even I don't know whether there's even a business model around it, perhaps some sort of loyalty or to train people how to use Windows and mice or something like that. But just you now accept that games can become free. Um, and so now I'm going to talk about all the different models. I mean, all these things I've been talking about, freemium, I'm going to map into the game industry. So, so, so. Uh, Premium, let's start with premium. 
Um, so when you uh, demos, whether it's a disc you get in a magazine or a data you download on Xbox Live, that's a classic premium. You get the free version, the Flickr basic, you know, um, until you try it. And if you like it, you then pay for the full version. Um, what's good about that model is that when you pay, you know what you're getting. You're already a committed user. You're somewhat price insensitive because you know you played five levels and you want to keep playing, etc. So you tend to be a happier, a happier uh, customer in the end. Then there's tiered access where you have um, online ones like Club Penguin, where you, you start with you start with free, and if you want more 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 capabilities, more assets, etc., you can move into a subscription um, model. So you can play free, or you can play paid, or you can play super paid. Um, we get even more assets, but that's, that's a way to kind of bring people in and only convert them when they already know that this is what they want. Um, there's the digital access, which, which Alex will, will talk a lot about, or, and know a lot about what he's done there, where you actually can give away the game for free, it's just, it's, he does with his games, and what we sell is assets in the game. Um, it could be the, um, uh, you know, some of the, the, the shirts and characters, and Alex, that conversation that you, that you described, where people were talking, uh, talking trash about me, but I was reading the comments in my blog. That is all, all too typical. And if only it were simple as getting a getting, getting a, a six pack abs and a, and a, and a club, I would have, uh, I would have paid them for that long ago. Um, but um, yeah, you know, we're seeing uh, lots of interesting experiments, mostly uh, right now in Asia, um, Korea, and China, um, where you have the game free and the, and the entire business model is around the assets. Um, uh, EA did an experiment with uh, FIFA Soccer, um, where uh, they found it was being pirated in Asia, and they said, "Okay, fine." Fine. Um, we're going to uh, the game will be free, and so we're going to sell you the characters, the, the clothing, etc. They brought that to the U.S. as, as well. But I think we're going to do this experiment um, uh, much more going forward because the technology allows it. And then you have just you know uh, uh, just the the, uh, the the tiered content. You know, you, 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 as you get more into it, you um, you know a, a minority share of the other consumers want to. Get the extra levels, get the extra songs, etc. But what's great about them is that they are your best customers. They're the most loyal. They're the most engaged. The ones who feel happiest to shell out the cash to have those additional elements. Okay, so that's basically premium. The premium model applied to games. Now let's do cross subsidies. Um, so web games. You buy the toy, you get the game for free. The toy, the plush stuffed animal, subsidizes the game. Um, you can see the same thing with, uh, with the card games, where you try to see this world between the game world and the, you do the digital world and the, and the, and the, and the analog world, the, the, the atoms world, where maybe you know, they can decide where to make money. Maybe the game will be free, we're selling cards. Maybe the card will be free, we're selling games. You can kind of move it around a little bit. Um, tournament fees, the idea of games as a spectator sport. Prince gives away the CD and sells the concert. Maybe you can give away the, the game and sell the experience of participating in something or observing something in, in real time live. Um, and then, then the idea of maybe not just selling the, uh, the assets, but instead become, uh, uh, charging a small fee as you create a marketplace for other people to sell the assets to each other. It's sort of an eBay model. They don't sell the products, they charge a little fee for enabling a place where people can sell the products to each other. And those are all kind of cross subsidies where you can sort of you can basically make your money in one place to make the game for free. Um, then there's the advertising, the third party pay models. Um, and you've seen, you know these very well. Um, you know, Adam games, you know, kind of Burger King thing, the casual games, you know, Yahoo games, etc. In-game advertising, which maybe doesn't make the game entirely free, but it can lower the cost to a point, maybe free becomes an option. Um, um, ARGs, um, alternate reality games, which you know are largely marketing vehicles, but are also games, those are always free. 
Uh, there's bundled games like Solitaire, which I showed you, where you bundle a game with a you know, phone or some things like that to improve the, to make the product more enticing. And there's notions like, um, like, like, like trial pay, where, where it's like, if you, choose, if, you, if you agree to do something that the advertiser values, we'll make this game free. Okay, that's the advertising um, form of free. Then the gift economy, obviously, user-generated content is a huge thing. Obviously, it has been the game's world mods, levels, user-generated content. Um, upcoming Spore is going to be um, you know, heavily based on user-generated content. Freeware, you know, you've always seen this, the kind of coders who just want to distribute, you know, this is like the indie band phenomenon where, you, where basically you're not in it as a business, you just want to be heard, you want to be appreciated. Coders like that as well. Um, the whole flash game phenomenon is a form of the freeware model of taking online where you don't have the risks and dangers of executable content running on your, on your hard drive. There's the communities that are built around the games world, like uh, game, game facts, etc., which are free, which are part of the game world, and yet, and yet, um, don't you know? Don't uh, they don't charge you for access, and yet they offer something with a huge value, the walkthroughs and all that. Um, and then it's donations, um, the whole tip jar phenomenon of free, which has never been big, but always remains an element um, there. The idea that if you give people something of value, they may choose to reward you out of sheer appreciation. Um, and then finally, I wanted to just sort of, sort of give you the, the labor exchange model. I told you about Google 411. You know, what you do is you, you help them. So you help them build their software and exchange it, give you something of service. Um, what um, Louis Van Aan is doing at Carnegie Mellon um, is fascinating. It's a series of games that are really designed to do, do, do work online. Um, they feel like a game, but you're actually doing something of huge value. This is one example, a whole bunch of them. But here's one where, where what, you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, um, you're trying to tag. You're trying to describe words. So we don't have, you know, the, 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 the holy grail of artificial intelligence is we will have the rules that describe our world. And yet we, we've never been able to come up with a corpus of rules that describe our world. So things like tagging allow you to do this. Um, and here's one particular game. What they do is they go online, and um, you get your one's a describer, one's a guesser. And you, um, you have a secret word, and you can sort of give them clues as to what the word is, but you can't say the word. And in, this, in getting clues, what you're doing is you're basically, you're basically building a composite definition of that word using every possible form of definition. If everyone does it, they give a different definition. And what you do is you basically get a tag cloud around a word. And they do it for music, describing music, a tag cloud, a metadata around music, described collectively in this form guessing game between two people who, know, who don't see each other, don't know about each other. And so um, these games are free, but what they're creating is something of immense value, which can be monetized and used anywhere else um, um, on, uh, you know, online. And yet, if, if the consumer feels fun and doesn't feel like work. So that is um, so that those are just some examples of how games will become free, can become free, and how expansive the new world of free can be in redefining what a game is, what a player is how you play, where you play, when you play, who you play with, all enabled by this grand experiment in exploiting the cheap economics of the internet to invoke the word free and, and uh, encourage participation. So uh, that's our cover story. Um, that is uh, the, the, uh, the uh, preview of my book coming out next year. The book will be, of course, free. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and, and with that, I, you can probably ask me how it's going to be free. And, and uh, wise free, et cetera. But um, I think we have a few minutes for questions. So thank you very much. I'll take questions.
story. Gets me thinking about Freebird. Anyway, there you have it. And I know it's not the fanciest recording, but it's what you got, and I hope you enjoyed it nevertheless. Uh, my thanks do go out to the folks who put on VidFest, especially Kristen Richter. And Chris Anderson himself, he's been very gracious. I had a chance to talk to him uh, before, and he indulged my humorous questions with uh, a grace and, and intellect. So thanks to Mr. Anderson, and uh, thanks to you for coming along. We'll see you next time on Rain City Radio. Mm-hmm.